Let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. I read this story, and I'm going to read it to you. I hope that you can understand how it's going to transition into our lesson today. So there was this jobless man who applied for the position of an office boy. The HR manager interviewed him, then gave him a test, clean the floor. The man passed the test with flying colors. The HR manager said, you're hired. HR means like human resources. And he informed the applicant, give me your email address so I will send you the application for employment as well, I'm going to send you the date where you're going to report to work. But the man replied, I don't have a computer or an email. So, I'm sorry, said the HR manager. If you don't have an email, that means you don't exist. <laughs> we cannot hire persons who do not exist. The man was very disappointed. He didn't know what, 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 he, what he was going to do. He only had $10 with him. And once he spent it, he wouldn't have any more money to buy any more food. So what he did was he went to the supermarket and he bought a crate of tomatoes for $10. From there, he went door to door and sold the tomatoes in less than two hours and he doubled his money. So now he has 20. He repeated the operation three times and returned home with $60. He realized that he can survive this way. He started going every day earlier and leaving later. He doubled or tripled money every day Soon after, he bought a cart, then a truck, and in a very short time, he had his own fleet of delivery trucks. Five years later, the man became one of the biggest food retailers in the United States. He started to plan his family's future, and he decided to have a life insurance policy. So he called the insurance broker to choose a protection plan, and at the end of the conversation, the insurance broker asks him, hey, send me your email so I can send you all this through email. The man replied, I don't have an email. So the broker, he was dumbfounded. You don't have an email, and yet you've succeeded to build this empire. Can you imagine what you would have been if you had an email? He exclaimed. And then the, ma the man, he thought for a while and replied, well, if I had an email, I'd be an office boy. Get it? Okay. God used this, this man's lack of computer and email, something that seems ordinary, to direct him in a different path that otherwise he wouldn't have taken. This is how God usually works in our lives, to bring glory to himself, through the ordinary means of life. Can he sometimes use extraordinary means in our lives to bring glory to his name? Yes. But we know that, for the most part, God operates in, in the ordinary day-to-day -day life, lives to bring glory to his name in all the things that we go through. Today's lesson will include both extraordinary and ordinary means that God will use or that God used to bring glory to his name. The extraordinary event will be the dream that God gave King Nebuchadnezzar about Yahweh's reign over future kingdoms. The ordinary event, or the ordinary means that he will use to bring glory to his name is a conversation that will take place with the king and his wise men, setting up for what seems an impossible task. But God 
as he always comes through, he brings glory and honor to himself with the interpretation of, eventually of the dream. Let's read today's passage. Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians and the conjurers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm. That if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. In chapter 1 of Daniel, we discussed God's reign and his faithful servants. We saw that the, the captivity from the empire of Judah to Babylon came under King Nebuchadnezzar and King Jehoiakim. We saw then the Babylonian assimilation where Daniel and his friends had to be assimilated to the culture of the Babylonians. We then discussed the faithfulness of these men who, de who defied the rule and were, would not be, who defied the rule and would not be defiled by eating pagan food that was offered to idols. And last time we spoke, we learned about the continued demonstrations of God's favor over these men because they were faithful to Yahweh and to his word. We saw that they had the best education, they get guaranteed government jobs, and ultimately Daniel was in positions of influence and power all throughout the Babylonian captivity for the Judah, Judah's empire. But at the end of the day, the most important part we learned was what? That God was always in control. He was always in control in the past, he's in control today, and he will always be in control in the future. He's in control over kings, he's in control over countries and governments, and he's in control of your personal life. We also saw that he was a loving God. He is a loving God and compassionate. That he would allow to have for the, for the Jews to have a spokesman, a spokesman in the middle of their exile in Daniel. 
So that's chapter one, and, and our story today continues chronologically. Today in chapter two, we're going to discuss and, and, and deal with God bringing glory to his name through ordinary and extraordinary ways and means. Specifically, we're going to see God's reign in subduing kingdoms. So chapter two, I've titled God's reign in subduing kingdoms. Chapter one, God's reign and his faithful servants. Chapter two, we'll be discussing God's reign in subduing kingdoms. And this is how I've outlined chapter two, big picture. Part one, we're going to discuss today the king's dream, verses one through uh, 18. We're going to divide that in two. So next time I'll see you, we'll, we'll discuss 12 through 18. Then we're going to see God's deliverance in verses 19 through 30. Then we're going to see God's plan over human history, verses 31 through 45. And then we're going to see how God remains in control, verses 46 through 49. So back to today. The first part of God's reign and subduing kingdoms is the king's dream. And the first part that we're going to look at from the king's dream is God reveals the future, verses 1 through 11. God reveals the future, verses 1 through 11. And let's look at that dream where God reveals the future in verse 1. The theme that I want you to have in your mind as we read and study this passage tonight is God uses ordinary and extraordinary events to bring glory to his name. God uses ordinary and extraordinary events to bring glory to his name. Let's begin with the first part of God reveals the future, the dream. Verse 1. Now in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. The messenger that God would use, that Yahweh would use to reveal the future plans of ruling the world would be King Nebuchadnezzar. God gave him this important dream, revealing what was to come. And we're going to focus on that dream in a couple of Wednesdays. But just to give you context of what the dream is about, it's basically uh, Yahweh, he's providing the history of four success, successive Gentile empires that are going to happen, that are going to come after his, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and it ends with Yahweh's final kingdom that will endure forever. This is the dream that God has chosen to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar. Now you might think, why did God choose him to reveal the future of the world? Why would God use a pagan king? Well, we know that Psalm 24 1 says, The earth is the Lord, and the Lord's, and all he contains, the earth and those who dwell in it. He chooses who he wants because he's God. Everyone that's in this world belongs to God. God can use anyone to accomplish his purposes and bring glory to his name. Think about it this way. The Babylonians were a world power at the time. And guess what? They were known for keeping great records of astrology and science. So the fact that God would allow King Nebuchadnezzar to have this dream was to have this dream recorded and have it pass the test of time. How do I know this? Well, think about how did, how did the wise men get to Christ to visit him when he was born? If it not... If, if not for the dreams and for the prophecies that were written by Daniel. And that was 400 years after Daniel in the Babylonian Empire. And they still had these records. Think about his providence back in Egypt in choosing a pagan king and pharaoh to bring glory to his name. To show those around him that he was a true God. Right? 
He, Pharaoh had this dream. No one can interpret it. In comes Joseph. Only God can interpret it. And Pharaoh saw that he declared that the Hebrew God was the true God of the world. But providentially, who was Pharaoh? He was a very resourceful man. He had the resources to what? To store the grain, to grow the food for the famine that was coming, to eventually fulfill the prophecy that, that, uh, that Abraham received, that his people would be slaves in, in Egypt for 400 years, but also to save them from dying and starving. And just like Pharaoh was restless when he received his dream from God, so was King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel tells us that his spirit was troubled, meaning his mind was troubled. The word for troubled here means to strike as with a hammer or an anvil or as a bell. And what does this do? It doesn't allow him to go to sleep. He can't sleep. And why is this important? Remember, dreams were important to the Babylonians. Why? Because the Babylonians believed that it was the way that the gods communicated to them. And it was important for them to know what this dream meant. He was worried because maybe this dream would deal with his future kingdom. He needed to know what was going to happen. He was, a, he was newly elected or appointed in his kingdom. And here he has this dream of a statue that's being crumbled. And he really wants to know what's, what's, the, what's the message behind this. Is this my kingdom? Is this a representation of what's going to happen to me? What does these reactions tell you about King Nebuchadnezzar or even mankind? Even mighty King Nebuchadnezzar, with all his glory and all his riches, loses sleep over what God can explain, only for what God has said. Loses sleep for not trusting in that God is in control. It shows us how small we are compared to our big and powerful God who never loses sleep and is always in control. So what does a king do to try to ease his soul about these dreams that he's having? So now that's the dream. Now we're going to move to the second part of God revealing the future, and it's the conversation. The conversation between King Nebuchadnezzar and his wise men. And in the first part of this conversation, we're going to see he's going to give some orders. Verse 2, then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So what does the king do? He orders all the wise men to come to tell him the dream and interpret the dream. For the Chaldeans, dream interpretation was an important gift to have, especially if you were serving in the kingdom, if you were serving under the king, because you were considered to be wise and you were considered to be close to God. So when these dreams came, you were able to interpret them and talk to the king and tell the king whether he needed to know. He called all those who could potentially help him to give him the dream and to interpret it. He called magicians, a person who claims to see the future. He called the conjurers, a person who practices sorcery through enchantments. He called the sorcerers, a person who uses or claims to use magical spells to harness evil forces or spirits to produce unnatural effects in the world, and he also calls the astrologers. They were the ones that kind of like um, recorded the moon and the stars and the sun, and they were pretty accurate in their science and their recording. 
However, this type of sorcery, it was widespread in the ancient world, but we know that for God, those who practiced such things were considered detestable. Look at what Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12 says. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or spirits, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Now, these wise men that come before the king, they could have been classmates of Daniel while they were studying together. They could have been in their position for a long time. We don't know. But what we do know is Daniel and his friends are not summoned at this time to go before the king. And this happened providentially. Why? God will use this moment to bring glory to himself and will set up a scene accordingly to reveal to those in Babylon that he was a true God. He's going to set up a scene that's so impossible for the Chaldeans to see that it was so impossible. So when his chosen people come and interpret the dream, it magnifies God's name even more. See, if Daniel and his friends were, were there, they probably could have given the dream an interpretation immediately. They, they, they had their faith in the Lord. They could have been like, Lord, give us interpretation. Tell us what we need to tell the king. They had faith in the Lord. They knew that their gifts were from God. They had no problem stealing his glory. They knew it was from God. But they weren't there in this moment. God just, he needed those wise men and the king to know that eventually it was only Yahweh who could do such a thing and providentially would allow them to be threatened by the king as we will see shortly. This is all happening because God is still in control. The fact that these wise men will be threatened is still under God's control. Who is the only one that can interpret dreams? Who gives the answers to these dreams that need to be interpreted? Who? God. Yeah, it's an easy one. So what did they do? They all came in, they stood before him, and they heard what the king had to say. What did the king say in verse 3? I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. The king expresses to them about the dreams that he's having, and he also expresses to them how having these dreams is causing him severe anxiety. He wants to know, what are the gods trying to tell me about me or my kingdom? The Hebrew word for I had a dream means to experience a series of mental images or emotions while sleeping. This restlessness is common when God speaks through dreams. We've seen this many times in Scripture. But just to give you one example, Genesis 41, verse 8. Now in the morning, his spirit, Pharaoh, was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. This verse ends... The order section of the conversation, now we're going into the consequences. In verse 4, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic and, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. See, the word for Chaldean here means astrologer, okay? Not the fact that it could, it could, it could have meant ethnicity. 
the people from Babylon, but in this particular case, it means astrologers. Astrologers. These astrologers spoke to the king in Aramaic. Aramaic was the contemporary language of international business at the time. Parts of the book of Daniel were also written in Aramaic as well. The, the term, O king, live forever, it was common. It was a common greeting to the kings at the time. And, the, and these astrologers asked him, tell us the dream and we can interpret it. Just tell it to us. We can interpret it. They were certain. I will declare it to you, king. They were certain. Stephen Miller writes, this was a well-meant promise because the astrologers were skilled in interpreting, interpreting dreams and had manuals that explained the various dream symbols. Samples of these Akkadian dream manuals have been discovered. All the wise men needed to know was the all the all the wise men needed to know was the nature of the dream so that their rules could be applied and an interpretation derived. Such explanations would not have been reliable, but would have satisfied ignorant people. What does God have to say about these wise men or astrologers trying to find an answer, trying to interpret his dreams? Look at what Isaiah chapter 44, verses 24 to 25 says. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. These wise men were clueless to interpret this dream. They were just trying, they were stalling time, as we will later see, because they, they, they don't, they didn't have the response. And look at how the king responded in verse 5. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. I like how the NIV translate this, translates this. It says, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. Meaning, he hadn't given the order before. This is the first time he's going to give this order and this threat. He told them, I have a dream, and I want you to guess what the dream is, but not only do I want you to guess what the dream is, I want you to interpret it for me. I want you to read my mind. He told them, if they, could, if they did not interpret the dream or tell him the dream, he would literally cut them into pieces, which is a common practice of punishment at the time, and not only that, he would destroy their homes, their families, and their homes would be made rubbish. What does this command tell you about the king, King Nebuchadnezzar? Is he a fair, just, and loving God? Sorry, loving king? No? He's actually pretty prideful to make such an impossible request. But why does he make this request? Why does he make this request? Stephen Miller writes, However, if the wise men could tell the king the dream he did know, then he would also believe that they could accurately make known to him the interpretation he did not know. He didn't want to take chances. The dream really shook his soul. And by saying, if I tell you the dream, you're just going to give me any interpretation I want to hear, and you're going to be over with it. But if you actually tell me the dream without me telling you and you interpret it, then I'll know for sure that you know what you're talking about. And you would think, who is this guy asking these demands, this pagan, arrogant, sinner? But guess what? He's chosen by God to deliver a message to the people back then and to us today. 
And God uses this pagan king to bring glory to his name by what? By having Daniel interpret the dream, letting everyone know that Yahweh is a true God. And what will he do to this arrogant king? He's going to make this king eat grass for a couple of years in the future. It's not going to, God doesn't just ignore him. But for the time being, he's using him in his will right now to share, to have this dream interpreted. And look, in his hypocrisy of being good, he tells them, but if you declare the dream in verse 6 and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. If you don't interpret it, you're going to be cut into pieces, your family's going to die, and your house is going to be made into rubble, rubble, rubbish. But if you do, I'm going to give you money, I'm going to give you gifts, and I'm going to give you prestige. Stephen Miller, again, he writes that this prestige includes promotions within the kingdom or marriage to the king's daughters. So in the king's mind, he's saying, I'm, I'm offering them a deal of a lifetime. And you're, you're astrologers, you're you know, magicians and sorcerers, this is what we pay you to do, so do it. It's not, it's not rocket science, just read my mind already. Again, look at the comparison of how earthly kings act compared to the king of kings and lord of lords. Until we die and can go with, be with Jesus, these are the type of rulers that the world has and that we're going to have to deal with until the Lord comes and establishes his kingdom forever. And that moment we can praise the Lord that we will have the greatest king ever. But for now, these are who God chooses. He places kings, he takes them down. And this is who he chooses to bring glory to himself at this moment. So guess what? The wise men, they're seeing themselves against the wall. Knowing it is impossible to fulfill what the king is asking, they, they cleverly respond. And here comes the rebuttal. In verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. Again, they say it one more time. They were hoping that the king had made a mistake and asked the king again, just tell us a dream and we'll interpret it. No matter how much they were going to work together, like all these four branches of knowledge Magicians, sorcerers, astrologers, all these people, they could not come. And they, could, they were looking at each other all nervously, I'm assuming. And they, what are we going to do? We can't ask. We can't do what the king is telling us to do. Do you think that the king's desire to have his wise men guess the dream and then give its interpretation was out of the blue? No, that still falls under God's control, God's sovereign control. He's the one allowing this to happen. He is always orchestrating his plans, always. He is allowing this to happen so that he can receive more glory when it comes down to having this dream being interpreted by his chosen servant, Daniel. The king catches on their ineptitude and replies in verse 8, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time since you have seen that the command for me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. The king tells him, look, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to buy time because you know that what I've said is going to happen. 
You know that I'm going to keep my word. And you know that if you don't tell me this dream and interpret it, you're going to die and your family's going to die and your house is going to be made a dumpster. Verse 9 continues. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. In other words, he's saying, stop trying to devise these plans to get out of the situation. Just tell me the dream, and I'll know that you're not disrespecting me or, or mocking me. In his mind, he was putting him to the test. You went through all this schooling. You dedicated three years of your life to learn these sorcery ways, these magician ways, these reading the stars and the moons and do what you're told. How can you not? It shouldn't be a problem. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king since no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. You got to give it to these wise men. They're trying to get their way out of this. They're trying to talk their way out of this, but it's not working. They responded with two answers. Number one, King Nebuchadnezzar, what you're asking is the impossible. You, we can't. No man on earth can do what you're trying and what you're requesting. Look at the words that they're choosing. They're choosing these words very intentionally. And God is allowing them to use these words. That the king is hearing, wait, my astrologers told me that no man on earth could tell me the dream that I had. Okay? And then not only that, they're saying no one can fulfill that request but because no king, no great king has ever asked that from anyone. Reading minds has never been done, so why would you start that now, O King Nebuchadnezzar? See, the wise men, they continue with the argument and end it with the climax of our introduction tonight. To rich theology that's dripping from this verse. And believe it or not, verses 1 through 11 does not mention anything of Yahweh. God's name is not mentioned there. Daniel's not mentioned there. His friends are not mentioned there. But yet it's dripping with God and who he is. Do you guys, uh, trivia, the book of Esther, you know that doesn't mention Yahweh at all? Zero. But it's dripping full of God and his love and his providence and his preservation of his people. Verse 11 reads, Moreover, the, king, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. King, there is no man who can do what you're requesting. The, thing, the type of thing that you're requesting, O King Nebuchadnezzar, can only come from the gods, lowercase g. These things are going to resonate in the king's mind, and these things will resonate in these wise men in the future when we, when we finish studying chapter 2. Even these pagan wise men knew that such requests could only be fulfilled by a supernatural deity. But in their acknowledgement, what comes? Comes their downfall. In the king's mind, that is exactly why they could fulfill his request. 
because they were supposed to be closer to the gods than the rest of the people. It's like asking a baker to bake a cake and he says to you, that's impossible, only gods can do that. See, God is using this ordinary interaction between these wise men and the king to set up the impossible. So that when Daniel does come and give the interpretation, Yahweh's name will be even more glorified. See, Daniel is recording this conversation to let the readers of that time who were leaving exile, going back to Judah, letting them know that God was always in control from day one to year 70. And letting us, us know today that he still remains in control. God was working through the extraordinary means in giving the dream to the king about what was going to happen to the future kingdoms and his reign, but also working in the ordinary through his conversation with the king and their wise men to let the Jewish reader know that even though they were captive, that even though they were taken from their land, that even though they were treated as slaves, it was no accident to God of everything that we're living through, and he was still in control. When we read this, our faith should be empowered as we serve a true God who is all-powerful, orchestrating every second of our lives. How do we conclude? Number one. Praise God for his sovereignty in how he orchestrates his plans. We're called to trust in God, guys. We don't know the outcome. Everything that happens to you happens for a reason, for a reason that God has intentionally decided. Every single aspect of your life is planned by, by an all-powerful, loving, good God. Thank God that we have this sovereign God who is in control of all of our time, of all of our ways, that he doesn't make mistakes. You see, when we're called to be Christians and we're called to take up our cross daily and follow him and we're called to die to ourselves and we're called to be doulas of Christ, it shouldn't, you shouldn't think about it twice because we are serving a perfect, holy Loving God that doesn't make mistakes. See, God uses the ex extraordinary means to bring glory to himself, but he also uses ordinary means in our everyday lives to bring glory to himself. Second, await the coming of the king. Await. I know we haven't studied the last part of the dream but it talks about God's divine kingdom, God's divine eternal kingdom. We see as we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, and as we read history, we see corrupt governments, corrupt leaders, corrupt kings, people suffering for these corruptions, but God is still in control. He was still in control in the past. He's still in control today. He'll still be in control in the future. But await the day when Christ reigns forever in perfection, and when we will reign with him for those who are believers in Christ. The last application that I want you to consider, 
and to really meditate on this week. Live your Christian life through the lens of God's providence. I want you to take your imaginary glasses and I want you to put them on and I want you to know that these glasses that you have, the lens is called God's providence. How does that, or what does that look like? Why do you go to the school that you go to? Why do you assist the co-op that you assist? Why was there someone in front of you and behind you when you were in line to buy something? At any store, at any point in time, at any point in your life. Why were you chosen to practice with that specific teammate? Why were you chosen to be in this specific team? Why, were you, why do you currently live in North Lake or Argyle? Why do you sit with those who you sit at the lunch table? Why do you have your next door neighbors? Why are they specifically your neighbors and no one else? Why did you sit with that person on that plane or on that bus ride to a field trip? Why do you have the coworkers that you have? Why did you get pulled over by the police for speeding? Why did your Amazon package not get delivered and you had to call and talk to someone with, with customer service? Why did you get in an altercation with somebody and them all? Why? If you put your lens on, if you put these glasses on, and you start to look at your life this way, instead of saying, why did these things happen to me? Saying, okay, God, these things are happening on purpose. There is no accident. You don't make accidents. What's the number one way you can glorify God with all the interactions that I just mentioned? These are perfect opportunities for what? You're dealing with people here. Yes, evangelism. I mean, like, if you can just, this week, just put on your glasses and, and every interaction that you have with every person around you, and if you can just think of that as a divine, ordained appointment that God has given you so that you can share his gospel, so that you can shed his light, so that you can be salt and light to the world that desperately needs it at all times and every times, that is what it looks like to live our lives, to live our Christian lives with the glasses of divine providence. And God will bring himself glory always. And if you're not in Christ tonight, I ask you, I tell you, one day we all will die. All of us are going to die. And we'll all be judged. And the verdict is not good. It's, we're guilty. For we sinned, we have fallen short of the glory of God. For wages of sin are death. All who have sinned before a holy God, their judgment is hell. That's the bad news. But the good news is Christ. He lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He lived a life that glorified the Father and he died on the cross being man and God. He rose from the dead on the third day, and he's alive today, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says that if you believe in Christ, and you put your faith only in him for salvation, not your good works, but him 
and you repent from your sins, the Bible says that you will have eternal life. God is declaring to all men everywhere that all should repent and believe. And all of you have no excuse of what to do with the truths that we just spoke today. And I pray that tonight could be the night of salvation for many of you. And I pray that tonight you can put on those lenses of God's providence and start trusting in the Lord with all that we have and in everything that we do instead of not being content, instead of worrying, instead of having pride in telling God how you should be living your life and what you should be living and trusting in him because he is good and he is perfect just like he was in Daniel, just like he was in Genesis, and just like he will be tomorrow. Let's pray. God, oh God, we thank you. We thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. Father, we, we're so small and our minds are so finite that we can't understand how you orchestrate every single plan. Give us the strength to trust in you, to trust in your character and your loving kindness and your goodness, and your justice. Allow us, Father, to understand and know that every aspect of our lives is planned by you. That we, when we meet strangers throughout our days, let us be bold and let us preach your gospel so that yours, your elect, can be saved. Let us bring glory to your name through, our ordinary, through your ordinary means that you have for our lives daily. And we do thank you, God, that you are the God of extraordinary means as well. You do do miracles and you can perform them and you are a good God. We just ask that we can just do your will and that we can praise you always. It is in your precious name that we pray. Amen.